Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. Negotiation is a dialogue between two or more people to reach a mutually beneficial agreement. Negotiation skills are essential, both in the workplace as well as in our personal life. It is the key to getting ahead and getting the outcomes that we want. But successful negotiation requires a combination of self-awareness, preparation, and practice. My guest, Sam McAllister, has mastered this art after relentlessly pursuing scoops her entire career. She'll share her secret sauce with us today. As a BAFTA-nominated interview producer on BBC's Newslight, Sam has negotiated with everyone from Buckingham Palace to the White House, Facebook to Tesla. With skills honed over a decade in the BBC's elite news programs, she persuades reluctant individuals to participate in a news program renowned for its rigor and bite, and has been called the Booker Extraordinaire. During our conversation, Sam will tell us how she secured some of the most exclusive interviews in journalism. She'll also offer her best tips for successful negotiation, including common mistakes to avoid and how to gain leverage even if we don't have a lot to offer. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hi, Sam. How are you doing today? I am great. And how are you? I am doing wonderful. It is lovely to have you on the show. I know that you're calling in from the UK, right? That's absolutely right. I am in semi-sunny London. It was sunny yesterday, but it's cloudy now. So British stereotypes are go-go. How are things out there? How's the weather? Because I was there about two weeks ago and it was still pretty hot. Oh my gosh, we should have met up. We could have had a cup of tea is the case maybe, oh. and maybe a scone. That would have been perfect. Um, I know. Yeah, it was it was brutal then. And now it's yeah. much back to the general stereotype of overcast with a chance of rain. And we Brits are obsessed with talking about the weather, as I'm sure you know. So it's a national pastime. So we're grateful for the changes so we can whine about it to one another. <laughs> But I'm sure you're grateful. You're grateful for it now, right? After you experienced that intense heat. Oh, I'm terrible in the heat. I mean, my skin is basically sort of alabaster. I'm the stereotypical English rose. I burn really within are. two minutes. I really yeah. do, and I'm like, I'm like a sweat fest. Apologies. Uh, within about three or four minutes. So I am not made for this weather or for global warming. Um, it's all over for me. So I'm desperately grateful for the rain. I even go out on my pavement outside in West London and dance in a slightly maniacal way up to the rain when it arrives, much to the chagrin of my poor son. Very embarrassing, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, as long as you enjoy it, then 
you know. <laughs> oh, I definitely know how to enjoy things. So that's not a problem. Anyway, Sam, we're here today to talk about um, something that many of us struggle with, myself included, and that's learning how to negotiate and negotiating to win, to be more specific. I know that you know this intimately well, having negotiated for most of your career, which you write about in your new book, Scoops, which was a really, really interesting read, by the way. Thank you. That's, um, it's been my lifestyle for quite a long time, as you say. Negotiation has been what I've done as a lawyer and then as a journalist. I just can't get rid of it. I love it so much. Yes, yes. And you're very good at it, too. I mean, you've been called the Booker Extraordinaire uh, because you've secured some of the most exclusive interviews in journalism, including the infamous Prince Andrews interview um, and Steven Seagal, uh, Sean Spicer, and several others. So... Sam, what do you think are the qualities and experiences that have given you an edge in your profession? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like a nature-nurture debate, which you wouldn't really think when it comes to negotiation. But I've been doing it for quite a long time now, as you rightly point out. Let's not go quite into the details of how long, you know, for the sake of my age. Um, <laughs> but bas- basically, it's a, it's a dualistic thing because... In the one sense, it's something that can be taught in terms of process, procedure, approach, your attitude, the way you behave, the way you research. But simultaneously, I have learned over the years, there is a certain X factor, as we might call it, something quite special that I've been lucky to have, uh, which probably is an ability to connect with people. I love humans. I'm very authentic in that connection. And whether you're a prince or a pauper, whether you're homeless or a billionaire, I just love that kind of human connection. So I would say it's simultaneous, a combination of the things I was lucky enough to be born with, which you can't teach, and then a panoply of different skills that I've picked up along the way through education, experience, hard knocks, rejection, success here or there. And then just relentlessly enjoying the process of being successful at negotiation sometimes and unsuccessful most of the time. So thick skin, hugely important. Yeah. Yeah. And how were you able to handle rejection? Because I know that's not easy as someone who does you know, book interviews for a podcast. How do you handle that? It's really hard and it's quite interesting because I often liken it to going on like a load of first dates and not getting (laughs) to many second dates, right? It's kind of like that in a sense. It's like the internet dating kind of situation, but in a professional setting because you have to not take it personally because in a sense it is personal, of course, but that might be 1% of it. So I've always chosen to take the approach that it's not about me. The person has obviously often very good, legitimate reasons for time or protecting themselves or other motivations as to why they said no. So I think the trick is really to take the no on the chin, find out if there's any breadth to change it to a maybe or a yes. So always respond to the rejection positively with a, I'm so sorry it didn't work out this time. Is there anything we could do to make it work in the future? Please stay in touch keep it respectful, be well-mannered, and then hope maybe, maybe that might change. But you do have to have a thick skin because there's a lot of no's and very few yeses. 
Yeah. And also be emotionally intelligent because I'm sure that it's easy to get triggered when you get that no, like, especially if you're been following up for like months and then at the end, you just don't get, you just don't get anything out of that person. So I think it's also being able to manage those, those feelings, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm not going I am not going to lie to you and say that I have never lost my rag about this or have a little <laughs> cry. I'm not yes. too proud to admit it. You know, yeah. there are things that you're so close to that mean a huge deal to you. And the difficulty with negotiation and being a booker is you can put a thousand hours in and get nothing. And it looks like you've been doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So it can be very difficult to manage yourself in a team. Because it looks like sometimes, you know, as one of my colleagues said rather brutally, all you do is make phone calls. Well, I wish. <laughs> um, is a lot of kind of unseen work in the work that we do. So you have to also develop a thick skin about the way you might be perceived in terms of your failure, because everyone notices your failures and they're less keen on noticing your successes. So that double thick skin for the rejection and a thousand hours that gets you absolutely nowhere does mean you have to take it on the chin and now and again have that little vent of frustration, a, a word that I won't use right now, but a, a harsh one, maybe a little bit of alcohol if that's what takes the edge off, a walk around the office or swearing, you know, was walking around the office or sometimes just anger, you know, or hurt. I'm not beyond that, but as I did it more, it happened less. Mm-hmm. And you actually trained as a lawyer, right? Um, That's right. You, you did work as a lawyer for, for some time. Yeah, I worked for several years as, as I know the, the names are different over here. So we have a barrister, which, barrister, which is basically yes. a court lawyer. Yeah. Um, and we wear wigs and gowns to make it all look pretentious and like it's something from the 18th century. I mean, in fact, it just gives you a head rash and a sweat. Uh, but I was... That kind of stereotypical, if you want to watch a British drama, you know, someone's being held, they're innocent, they're in the dock, there's a gavel, which doesn't happen where somebody slams it, the judge looks 300 years old, and everybody's wearing that strange horsehair contraption that looks like your Queen Elizabeth, and a gown flowing behind you like your kind of Batman cross with Queen Elizabeth. And, and that was my job, defending people charged with, you know, murder at one mm-hmm. end, uh, maybe paedophilia, maybe rape, or a bit of shoplifting, which was usually the norm, let's be frank, because I was quite junior. So that's how I started out. And that's where I got my first taste of professional negotiation. But my background was market people um, at the East End of London, Cockneys selling meat and fish. So I had a background in hard negotiation at markets and then the professional setting of learning as a lawyer to professionally negotiate. So I was very lucky to have the best of both worlds. At some point, you decided to pivot and kind of transfer those skills into another profession. Yeah, that's right. I think decided to pivot is very generous of you. I basically could not take another day. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever had that experience. Yes, I have. But I'm sure, well, then you understand. There's yes. there's a tipping point and. I went as far as I could without losing my mind. And then I realized I needed to walk away, to be frank. So I walked away with necessity for my sanity. Um, and it was a privilege to do the job, but I never looked back. It was a very hard job and very rewarding in some ways, but brutal in others. 
Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage to do that. So I'm glad you did. Otherwise you wouldn't have all those fabulous interviews that you produced. (laughs) Thank you. That's very kind. Sam, let's talk about some of these, about the interviews. I mean, you're convinced, you've been able to convince reluctant individuals to participate in interviews where they would otherwise say no. So how could you get past a no to a yes? What was your secret? I think the secret is humility and respect and self-knowledge. Now, the classic negotiation, and I learned this at law school when I was dealing with uh, young people, my same age, who had incredible education and access to extraordinary privilege, but they would all follow the same pattern. And the pattern goes like this. Here are the things that I want from this negotiation. I'm going to aggressively pursue them and I'm looking to win. Now, here's what I want is the first place you're going wrong. Everybody knows what you want. It's simple. What I wanted was to get the interview. So what you want is not a clever or smart question because you know that already. What they want is the thing that you're trying to identify. And that is the process that you're looking for. How you get there, trying to win, another huge mistake as well. Negotiation isn't actually about winning. It feels like it is, but it's not a competition. And as soon as you get yourself into that dynamic of competition, you're not thinking of the other person. You're waiting for your chance to speak, to make your point, to get yourself further. And you're also not listening to them. And most importantly, you're not adapting. So the error for most people when they start a negotiation is looking to win, looking to engage in, frankly, an aggressive way, and also looking to turn it into something where you look smart. So the thing I found with the negotiations I did over the years was even if I did get initially a no, I would always ask why, and then I would adapt my position if I was able, if I was able to meet them halfway, because often the reason they say no is something that you can actually change. They just didn't tell you what it was. If it's still a no, I keep it respectful. I keep it kind. I stay in touch. And every time the story changes, I revert. And then that foundation of respect, decency, listening, not being aggressive, and taking a no well can often mean that somewhere in the future, things change a little bit or a lot. And your no for months and months and months eventually might become a yes. Not always. But I think it's just about not doing that thing that most of us do when we get a no, which is to go, oh, my God, I can't believe it, and move to the next thing. That is the biggest mistake. Take it well, continue with what you intended, see if you can change their mind, and if not, continue with respect, relentlessly, and keep trying. And maybe it will still be a no, but maybe it will change to a yes. Hmm. How do you keep your ego in check when you constantly get a no? How do you manage how do you manage your emotions? I think that's really difficult to begin with because it is very personal. Um, it feels it. But as I've said, taking the personal element out of it, it is a business decision after all. Now, I wasn't dealing with money. I was dealing with making decisions about journalism or about telling a story. But the person is entitled to say no. They're entitled to have reasons that they think are legitimate to reject your offer, if you like. And I try to think of it more as a business context. So when they were saying no to me, they're effectively saying no to my business proposition, not to me, Sam. 
So taking it slightly depersonalized, I think is hugely helpful for dealing with it because you get a lot of no's. So if you don't develop a strategy, it's not about they didn't like me, they thought I was a horrid person or stupid or that my idea was idiotic. It was to do with the business proposition I was making and that depersonalizes it. And it also allows you to take that stigma out of the rejection because it's not personal to you. It's about what you were able or unable to offer as the case may be. Yeah, that's really good advice, Sam. And did it help that you had like a big corporation like BBC supporting you? I would say the opposite, actually, because the work that I was doing was not something that there was a tradition of at the BBC. So I know a booker in America is like a big deal, right? You guys know that that's an important role. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a tradition of that here in the UK, almost to the point that I would say people are awkward around how this process happens being articulated for two reasons. Reason one, traditionally, the presenter or the person at the end of this process does something, an interview, and nobody used to ask the question, well, how did that interview happen? And I think that that was something that people didn't really used to think about. So that's one of the reasons. And the second reason, I think, is because People are not really used to talking about these minutiae. And so there's kind of a discomfort almost with having conversations around it because they feel it takes away some of the glamour and the gloss of how the process happens. So that's kind of, you know, how things are moving and changing a little bit. But in this country, an, a booker or an interviews producer wasn't really a thing and almost seen as a little bit declasse, you know, we shouldn't really be asking for content. So the BBC tends to have, I would say, a proposition of quite often passivity where they expect things to come to them. My personality is the opposite. I like to go and get things for myself. And I would say initially, probably some people found that a little bit unusual or difficult. Perhaps even forgive me, I take it as a compliment, a little bit American, as one of my colleagues said to me. So <laughs> I like I like to go out and get what I want rather than sit and wait for nothing to happen. That's not my kind of vibe, but that's a more traditional British vibe, I would say, to do that. Right, right. Yeah. And Sam, what is your process for setting up a negotiation? Because we know preparation is a is a really um, key piece when it comes to you having successful interviews and being able to book, you know, the people that you want. Um, is it something that you you plan in advance, or do you kind of improvise uh, based on the response you're getting from the guests? Absolutely, I would love to give you a definitive answer, but you're absolutely right. It's a bit of a pick and mix. Like when you go to a cinema and get different suites, you have to kind of think about what's in your toolbox. The first thing is you can always legislate for is research. Now, I don't mean spending days and days, you know, you don't want to bog yourself down. But the most basic thing, even if you have five minutes only or 10 minutes before a research call, obviously good old fashioned Google, go straight to news, don't bother with the generic one, look at at least 10 articles to find out areas of controversy, go straight to their Twitter feed. If it's run by them, it will give you the best info about what their personal opinions are on things. Take a note of recent things they've said or policies that they've announced or books they're working on, or whatever it is. Make sure you put that into your conversation so that the guest knows that you've taken the courtesy of the time 
to do a little bit of research about them. I think that's hugely important. This can be applied to even to any field, right? So even in business, any like if you, before you're meeting, yeah. Any field. So I now do kind of um, seminars with, you know, law firms and corporates where I'm talking maybe to 100 people or 10 people or being interviewed or interviewing someone. And I apply exactly the same method because ultimately when you're dealing with people, the last thing you want to do and the email of horror is the one that I call it, where you get one of those generic emails. You know, the one I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. mixed font, your name spelt wrong. They probably called you Selena. They've called me Anne. Uh, <laughs> yes, they've spelt my surname happened. wrong. Exactly. They've spelt your name wrong. Yes. Never underestimate those basics. And they apply whether you're dealing with a judge in the Supreme Court or whether or not you're dealing with somebody who's kind of minding their own business, like, you know, somewhere else in the news world, or whether you're dealing with a corporate. Get their name pronounced correctly. Oh my God, number one. Make sure you're on time. Make sure you've done some research about them to understand their business model or their personal circumstances or their politics. So lead with research and then you have to use yourself, your human self. And that's the complicated part because that's the one that requires making split second decisions. And Sam, some things you can't prepare for, right? Like you can't really know what kind of person you're dealing with, their personal style, the communication, the way they communicate, their temperament. Do you observe them before you say anything when you actually interact with them, whether it's on the phone or whether you meet them in person? Yeah, I think it is, again, if you can research somebody. I mean, I'm, some of the people I'm dealing with are public figures. So usually I might have someone in common with them. Um, I look on LinkedIn, see if we have friends in common. Maybe somebody's mm-hmm. met them. I watch a speech with them or if they've done a TED talk, not the whole thing, God forbid, but, you know, a few minutes of it to get an idea of their personality. Like no doubt you did with me. You can learn a lot in just five minutes of watching people on video. And then when it comes down to it, you have to be disciplined. It's not about you. Really important when it comes to a negotiation. We all like, don't we, to make a good first impression, to show off how clever we are, how witty we are, how you know brilliant we are. In negotiation, that is your enemy. It's about them. So when you arrive, you need to think about what you're going to lead with. I think particularly as women, we do have quite a few things in our toolbox. Obviously, sometimes people make assumptions about us based on them, but we can lead with different things. And each of us as men and women can. You can lead with your pure intellect, no humor. You can lead with pure humor, no intellect, charm, anecdotes, connection. You can lead with trying to be a bit aggressive. You can lead with being passive, depending on how they react. But each time it's an active decision. So look at how they behave, how they react to you. Sometimes I would get it wrong. I'd make a joke and it clearly went badly. And then I'd go very cool, calm and collected. Adapt, change. Sometimes you're being too impersonal and they're being personal. And then you need to bring up your exchange of information. If they exchange private information, always reciprocate. If they don't, don't suddenly tell them about your private life. So take your lead from them, treat how their boundaries are with respect, try and push them a little bit to make a human connection. But if you have an idea of how you're going to behave before you go in, you're already in trouble because that's not how humans work. Right. And and that you also have to keep their culture in mind, right? Their culture and their background, because that will also determine 
their attitude towards negotiations? Totally. I, in terms of that, I would often go to embassies and obviously different embassies have different traditions, particularly when they're dealing with women again. I'm not looking to be sexist about this, but there are different considerations in terms of how you dress or, or cover yourself or how you interact. So that would be something I would be careful of for sure. Other things, simple things like handshakes or whether or not you make physical contact, you know, something you could really mess things up straight away if you're dealing with a country where traditionally people aren't looking to do a handshake or God forbid a hug. Uh, So making sure you take advice on kind of like the social structures and the cultural structures, hugely important, I think. Not swearing, very basic. I'm a big swearer in real life. (laughs) making sure you keep your language respectful you know any of these things no sailor mouth no sailor mouth it can just ruin it for you when you were doing really well so thinking about them and not making it about you but making sure you're respectful without being deferential or not being yourself but you know keeping those boundaries because after all it is a professional setting right right and what are some of the things that people should know before they go into a negotiation I think the most important thing to know, it really is, number one, what is the sweet spot for the person you're negotiating with? And sometimes that will be financial. I mean, in business deals, that's, you know, it's millions, it's hundreds of thousands. Well, that's a simple sweet spot. Far more sophisticated is asking yourself, what is the human sweet spot for them, the personal sweet spot? So that is where I would, if I didn't have a lot of time, always focus my primary intent. Whether it's Julian Assange in an embassy locked away trying to publicize his book, whether it's Prince Andrew in Buckingham Palace trying to, believe it or not, vindicate himself against the world, whether it's Sean Spicer trying to reform his reputation or Stormy Daniels bringing her truth about what happened to her to the globe. Whatever it is, you need to work out what will make them go, okay, This person understands what I want to do and ultimately motivate them to choose you as the place that understands what their motivation is. So you need to be thinking about their sweet spot. And that research will help. If you can talk to people who know them, that will help. Or just using your experience and common sense to work out if you were them, what are the things that are going to make you yes or no to something that's going to expose you to risk. And that really is the process that I would go through every single time. So knowing exactly what they what they're looking for, the end result that they're looking for, the sweet spot as you as you just said. Yeah, absolutely. And in a sense it's often a motivation rather than what they're the looking for. Motivation, to achieve. yes. Exactly. Yeah. So I would What's say What's in it know, for me, right? What's in it for them or what do they want to achieve? You know, why would they put themselves in that position? So once you've identified what that is, you really are moving towards their position to understand why they want to do it or why they don't want to do it, because it's infinitely predictable what their reservations will be if you've done proper research or put yourself in their shoes. So all again about taking away your ego and trying to put yourself in the position of them dealing with you and what their concerns, their motivations, and their sweet spot might be to turn it from a maybe or a no into a yes. Yeah, I mean, I was watching the the Prince Andrew interview, and 
she didn't hold back. She asked him some very tough questions. And I'm thinking, did they tell him that they're going to ask these type of questions? And he actually agreed to go ahead with it? Well, I think actually the questions are rather simple. Um, But the answers are really quite dramatic. But in British journalism, we don't agree questions. Yes. So there are no conditions. Yeah. So the skill of the negotiation often for me as a news journalist was moving the interviewee from the position of I only want to talk about X, particularly, forgive me, with American interviewees who perhaps are more used to being able to run things in terms of the content to we can ask anything we like with the understanding that you still want to talk about your business plan or your book or your charity project. So they don't know what the questions are going to be. They're infinitely predictable, but we do not accept restrictions. So that is why that interview was so extraordinary, because have you seen an interview before or indeed since, will you ever see one ever again, where those kinds of questions about sexual impropriety, trafficking, allegations of rape, I mean, that is cataclysmic for any interviewee, let alone a member of the royal family. He, he seemed to be handling it pretty well, you know, because I don't know if you've seen the R. Kelly interview with uh, Gail King. Um, I have. Like, I have seen he, that. In, in he, he just he couldn't take it. Like he just, you know, he threw a tantrum and he overturned a table and he just lost his cool. But um, I don't know. It was a uh, it was interesting to watch about how Prince Andrew navigated that. Well, absolutely. And one of the things I would say, I'm I'm no way am I looking to defend him or what he may or may not have done. Yes. You do have to say it is incredibly unusual for somebody to keep their cool and to answer with such openness. I was going to use the word honesty, but let's, you know, Mm -hmm. let's not go that far because we're not sure about some of the honesty. Yeah. to, To speak that openly, particularly in our current climate, is a billion to one. We never see interviews like that anymore. Or if we, we do, don't, we, we don't. We see That's why I was so surprised. We see yeah. tantrums. We see people leaving set, like I had with Stephen Seagal when we did an interview with him. Or we see what I would call conversations masquerading as interviews, where interviewees sit down with a with a friend. I'm, you know, alluding obviously, um, where they sit down with someone friendly who asks nice questions and wants them to look lovely and fluffy. This is the opposite of that. And that's what makes it so extraordinary as a televisual experience. Yeah, I felt that the power dynamics kind of flipped. Like she was in power. She was like, I'm steering the ship and I'm going to just ask you whatever I want. You know, and I I definitely admire her for that. That was really good journalism. Yeah, she's a fantastic presenter. Emily Maitlis is just really brilliant and skilled. And what was so interesting about it is if you go back and you actually don't listen to his answers, the questions are very simple. They're very respectful. They don't use any kind of colorful over-the-top language. She's not looking to provoke him. Mm-hmm. We knew from our negotiations that his answers would likely, if we were lucky, be quite extraordinary. So she is a brilliant intellectual presenter foil to she him is. giving extraordinary life-changing, disastrous answers. She opens the door and every time he walks right through. It was electric in the room. I mean, I was 15 feet behind him um, watching his 
Oh, were you? Okay. Side. Yeah. So 15 feet behind his chair is where I'm sitting. You'll never see me because it's a very locked off shot. But that's 5% of the room. 95% of the room is people from the BBC, myself, other colleagues, Jake and Stuart, who were also working on it, cameramen, sound men, a hairdresser, a makeup person, a photographer, an ecri, which is kind of a royal executive assistant, various Mm -hmm. other interns, people milling around. So the drawback of the camera, had you been able to see it, is also fascinating because you see that stillness between those two individuals locked. Really, he is in a in a battle for his reputation. And just behind those cameras, all of us milling around, all the wires and the lights and the bits and bobs and bags and everything all over the floor, all the mess, and just all those people that you just can't see sitting behind, literally holding their breath sometimes in my case, unbelievable what he's saying and just knowing that this is a historic moment this interview is something profound wow yeah I mean you were able to secure that like how what was that process like for you the process is really interesting because usually I just work completely alone um, and initially it started with an approach from some PRs who wanted us to do a puff piece. Uh, so the program's called News Night and it's kind of like, you know, 60 minutes. It's got a quite sort of in your face, uh, aggressive vibe. Um, and they wanted us to do just basically an advert for the the work that he was doing with entrepreneurs, which, which I declined. I said, stay in touch, you know, do get back in touch if things change. A miracle of miracles, that never happens. They did. And I was invited to go on my own to Buckingham Palace. This is in May wow. and the interview mm-hmm. was in November. So off I trotted and I didn't even tell my editor because we had never done an interview with a member of the royal family on my program. No tradition for it, no precedent whatsoever. So I went to Buckingham Palace to meet his chief of staff to do my negotiation that I assumed was a road to nowhere. And that initial negotiation where I spent two or three hours with Amanda Thirsk, who was his chief of staff, um, is not anymore, of course, uh, was really the foundation because it ended with a no. So that no was the most important thing that happened in the process because we'd created rapport. We had mutual respect. We declined them because they offered an interview, but there was a condition and we don't do conditions. So my editor declined rightly. But that no was the foundation for later having the mutual respect the connection, the understanding, the integrity between us and knowing that that connection already existed obviously gave us a huge, huge head start and in when things changed in the prince's life and it became more and more impossible for him not to speak. So I had such a huge head start because of those months of contact with Amanda and it was email after email, message after message. Well, perhaps we can come back now. You know, Epstein's been arrested. Epstein's dead. Maxwell's been arrested. Surely now the prince wants to speak to us. In truth, I never thought he would. But that is the job. A thousand hours to get a no. So I put in my a thousand hours, assuming it would be a no. But by miracle of miracles, this one turned out eventually to be a Yes. Wow. So you nurtured that relationship with her for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's genuine with me. I mean, obviously, it is a business that you're doing. You're in the business of negotiation. But I think the thing that would always give me the extra edge is that I never say anything I don't mean. 
I never pretend there's going to be stuff happening that isn't going to happen. I don't tell people what they want to hear. And if they ask me something I don't know the answer to, instead of blagging it, I'll always say, I'm sorry, I don't know. Let me get back to you. So they would always know that when they were dealing with me, I was fair. When we were asked back again in October, that was myself and Emily Maitlis, the presenter that you've described, who did the interview. Usually I never do a negotiation with anyone next to me. So that was my first time ever in my career negotiating with a presenter next to me. We went back and did another couple of hours. And then that was in October. And then a couple of weeks later, we're invited back to meet Prince Andrew face-to-face for a face-to-face negotiation in Buckingham Palace with a member of the royal family. And that time, we also took our deputy editor, Stuart McLean, who ended up being the exec on this project. So it started with one, it went to two, and then there were three of us, but only three of us in that palace with everything on the line for a face-to-face negotiation with a member of the royal family. We use the word unprecedented a lot, but on this occasion, unprecedented to be in that situation, the three of us in that tiny room with him talking about the things that we were talking about, really quite an extraordinary experience. Amazing, amazing. That is so inspiring, Sam. I mean, especially for people who feel like they don't have a lot to offer, a lot to bring to the table. And, you know, this is a good segue to my next question. I mean, how can people find leverage in situations where they don't have a lot to offer, where they don't have too much power? Um, How can you convince the other person to get on board? I think sometimes you just have to admit that you haven't got enough. You know, sometimes there is a position in which the difference is so stark that you are really in trouble. So all you can really do is be honest about how big the distance is. In this case, it probably started off about 99 against, one in favor. And you try and improve your position through a combination of research and charm, you know, charisma, old-fashioned, old-school manners, trying to find a charming way to approach things. So, you know, I would always advise people, if you're lucky enough to have, you know, a little bit of a charisma or charm. And if you haven't, it's going to be a little bit tricky for you because you need to work on that being human and easy to deal with and showing respect. It's very, very usual nowadays for people just to send an email or, you know, WhatsApp. No, thank you very much. Make sure every single time you try and get a face-to-face meeting, make sure every single time, if you can't get a face-to-face meeting, you at least try and do a phone call so that they've had a connection with you on a human level. Make sure you're dealing with the right person. And when you're doing this, again, apply the same rule. You know, I'm being a pain in the bottom and they're the person that has like the thing I'm trying to achieve. So don't, you know, ask them to come to you. Don't ask for an hour. Don't ask yeah. for anything. Don't look desperate, imp- right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you need to know where, the, where to draw the line. but you need to do something that's convenient for them. So always offer to go to their office, suggest 10 minutes, tell them they can put on a timer if they like, you know, treat it like an elevator pitch, treat them with a little bit, not of deference, because I'm not a fan of deference, but respect the fact that they are doing you a favor. You're not doing them a favor. So come at it from that dynamic. And then you need to remember that you are asking them for something and they don't need to give it to you. So I would suggest that you have a realistic request that makes them go, oh, do you know what then? I'll I'll see her for 10 minutes. You know, asking to see them for lunch, for example, might be impossible or even half an hour might be impossible. 
but between meetings, you know, in one of their meeting rooms where you get there beforehand and you promise it's 10 minutes and you even put a timer down, as I sometimes did, to show respect for their time. You've just got to adapt yourself to what their lifestyle is, not yours. Yeah, that, that's great advice. And what if you have to deal with the gatekeepers? Like, how do you manage? You should, yeah, deal, I mean, you know? usually I was yeah. dealing with the gatekeepers. Yes. Um, I mean, Prince Andrew Especially was with the high-profile people, yes. Yeah, with high-profile people. The only high-profile people I've ever negotiated with face-to-face or phone-to-phone are Prince Andrew. And then um, I don't know whether you know, um, but uh, the businessman Sir Philip Green, who's very renowned here, who ran Topshop and other concerns. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know Topshop. Yes. Yeah. So a a billionaire businessman here who's sort of, you know, uh, a very like high value uh, individual. And they're the only two that I ever dealt with face to face. Everyone else, it's the second in command. Now, the trick here that's really important is to get the right second in command. Most people have layers and layers of people who will never bring it to their boss, literally never. So if you're speaking to the wrong person, it's game over already. So Mm -hmm. do what you can if you have connections and contacts. When someone says, oh, you need to speak to X, I never take that at face value. I will always try and do a bit more research because invariably it's not the right person. I had that experience with Facebook, for example, where eventually uh, I managed to speak to Sheryl Sandberg. It took me about two years. For Facebook, right? Yeah, exactly, for Facebook. Yeah. I kept getting sent to like a PR agency or this person. I went to a load of meetings and every time I knew it wasn't quite the right person, but eventually it did get me to the right person. And eventually we got that interview. So you have to be quite resilient in making sure that it's the right person and careful not to tread on people and rub them up the wrong way, annoy them by going behind their back but finding a way to get to the person who actually will take it to the person you're speaking to or wanting, because 99 times out of 100, it just goes to a gatekeeper. The gatekeeper presses delete or says, oh, yeah, I asked them. And of course, they didn't. So make sure you get into the habit of ensuring that even if you get a no, it was a genuine no rather than a question that was never asked. Mm, A genuine no. I like that. (laughs) So you mean to say that they actually looked into your request and then they kind of decided, yeah, yeah. Yeah, an actual process. An actual process is what you need to be sure that you did everything that you can. And mm-hmm. the thing I always felt with my job, and I would always say excellence is its own reward because sometimes you need to cheer yourself up because <laughs> there's not much else I know, going right? on, right? I mean, it's, hard, <laughs> it's hard work. It's hard work. Do you have a support system? Like if you have a really bad day, is there someone that you you speak to and just be like, man, you just I have not been having any luck getting the people that I want, you know? Yeah, on, on I mean, actually, yeah. um, my best friend is a TV presenter on the BBC here in yeah. the UK, and she does high profile interviews with you okay. know and Angelina Jolie or HR McMaster, you know, Karzai, mm-hmm. you know, world leaders, and and she and I were, if you like, in a sense, the only people in the building who really understood one another. So mm-hmm. we were competing often for the same content because the BBC competes against itself, which is the most ridiculous situation, but that's how it works. But she and I had, you know, an understanding that in a sense, other people didn't get it. It doesn't feel like a big deal to lose an interview. But when you work in that profession and you've put so much work and emotional 
and professional energy into it. When you lose out, it is painful, it is demoralizing, and sometimes it's downright depressing. So we would be the go-to for one another, even when sometimes it was because she had actually won the interview and I'd lost it or vice versa. We were able to understand one another in a way that I don't think 99.9% of the building would have understood because we really know how hard this work is. Yeah. So having that, having somebody, having a support system as you go through this negotiation process, I mean, it helps. Definitely does. Oh, definitely. And to bounce your ideas off of, because sometimes I would reach a a, a dead end and I needed another perspective to say, well, am I missing something here? You know, and having somebody else who knows how that process works is hugely helpful. Or if you sometimes reach a cul-de-sac, they might have, you know, not reached a cul-de-sac and they might be able to use some of your failures in a, in a sense to give them a success. And that generosity, if it's with someone you really care about, is something you can just about live with between the two of us. We could just about live with that. If I didn't win and it was her, then that was still fantastic in comparison to it being someone else uh, because it's a really competitive sport getting mm-hmm. this exclusive content in a news environment. It's hard work and it's a no, fight to the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great working relationship you have with her. Really, really lucky. I was very blessed to have her in my life. Right. All right, Sam. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I would love to talk to you all day, but I think we better end, end the interview here. Um, thank you so much. It was so, so insightful. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge um, and experience with us today. Not at all. Pleasure to meet you and good luck with it. If you ever need any more tips, you know where I am. Of course. Um, For those interested in purchasing uh, Sam's book, uh, Scoops Behind the Scenes of the BBC's Most Shocking Interviews, it is now available in all major bookstores. Okay, uh, it's been great speaking with you, Sam. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your evening. You too. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.